What's up, sports fans? It's time for Let Me Speak. I'm Joe Braverman, and on this show, we discuss the big news in the world of sports as heard from me, myself, and I. Here's what we'll be talking about this week. With two months to go in the regular season, the teams to monitor throughout the MLB. Plus, ahead of preseason week one, the players in the NFL who need a good showing. And reacting to the elimination of the U.S. women's soccer team. You're listening to episode 85 of Let Me Speak. Let's get things started. Hit that intro. Let me speak. Everybody coming at you on a different day here. It's Tuesday, August 8th, 2023, and you are once again listening to episode 85 of this special podcast right here. Let me speak. Everyone for tuning in wherever you are getting this. Thank you once again. I can't say it enough. It's been great to be back. Uh, we were out for those of you who are just joining or are listening just to the very first time. We were off for about a year. We did about 80 episodes, but now we're back. It's been about a month or so. And I got to tell you, it's good to get back in that podcasting flow. So we're going to have a lot of fun, obviously, today. And I did say right off the top, it's a different day. Normally, we've been recording on Monday since we've been returned. Now it's a Tuesday. We've had some unforeseen circumstances. Of course, some torrential rain as well uh, getting in the way. But here we are. We're getting an episode out for you. And we're giving you all the latest up to date in the world of sports. And I say, let's not wait any longer and talk about the MLB, because it has been almost a week. Um, Here on Tuesday, it's about 3.30 in the afternoon, so it's been almost exactly one week since the trade deadline came to an end. And honestly, there are still a couple of teams that we're we're still reacting to. And we'll get into one team that I have strong feelings about. It's uh, someone close to where we're recording here in Swampscott, Massachusetts. But... For some of the teams who decided to buy and some who decided to sell, I was kind of surprised. I was kind of surprised who bought and who sold. I mean, for starters, right off the top, did not think the Orioles were going to make a move. They were going to stick to where they were, plus they're a small market team. You have Tampa, who historically hasn't made uh, any kind of trade deadline acquisitions. Um, And then you've got your standards, obviously, that were a surprise. Um, You've got... All the contenders, the Dodgers obviously made some moves I talked about last week. Uh, The Rangers made some moves, obviously. The Mets selling everyone off, which, by the way, side piece, it's nice to get Steve Cohen, uh, the general manager of the Mets, a little humble pie there because he decided to put all his eggs into two older pitchers uh, with some guaranteed money. Um, So that's kind of nice to see. But to hear them say that they're going to wait until 2025, That plan just blew up right in their face. Um, But the teams that I was very surprised to see uh, buy and or sell, I want to start with the Padres because obviously the Padres were one of the teams that were talked about in the offseason giving out ginormous contracts. They go, they sign uh, Xander Bogarts. They extend Manny Machado. They're going to extend Tatis. uh, Talks about maybe bringing back Juan Soto. Um, But honestly, like in the here and now, I did not think that they had a chance of uh, making the playoffs, honestly. Like, the way they started 
where it was just such a they've been sub 500 for a very long time just getting the record here real quick they're still 55 and 58 so that's still not good but in a national league that's kind of wide open after you get those top two top three teams it's kind of wide open when you think about it I mean the standings right now you've got the Giants and the Phillies in those first two wild card spots which I think are a lock then you got the Reds the cut the Reds who are in the third spot they're a game up on the Cubs they're a game and a half up on the Marlins two up on the Diamondbacks and then you've got the Padres who are only four backs so I guess that San Diego still thinks that they are a player and they can make a run in this MLB season. Now, looking at the moves that they made, obviously every playoff contending team goes and gets pitching and they go ahead and get Rich Hill, who's basically as old as time and is the uh, MLB's equivalent, the new version of Bartolo Colon. Um, They get a reliever, obviously, in Scott Scott Barlow. And then they grab another bat in G-Man Choi. Um, And then when you look at who else they have with that starting rotation, I mean, you're going to get Michael Walker back, who before the injury was pitching great for San Diego. You lump in Blake Snell, you Darvish. Now you have Rich Hill, who's a uh, uh, back-of-the-end rotation guy. who You're not looking for dominant outings, but you know a starter that can at least get you four, maybe five innings. Uh, I thought they were good moves. Maybe, you know, it might be like too little too late. Um, but I think with the moves that they made, they're kind of banking on the fact that all those teams ahead of them are going to come back down to earth. Because honestly, like when the season started before uh, spring training got underway, who would have thought that the Cubs, the Reds, the Marlins, and the D-backs were going to be contenders for the playoffs? Definitely not me. Definitely not me. I thought all of those guys all those teams were going to be in the cellar. But meanwhile, you've got playoff expecting teams like San Diego, like the Mets, like the Cardinals, who are down in the basement. Um, so San Diego, I think I think what they did is they look at their roster and they say, we have enough proven guys that we can turn things around. Um, they sure up their starting rotation. They're hoping that their lineup is not as inconsistent as it's been all year. Plus, against the teams that you're ahead of, uh, for the rest of the season, they've got seven games left against Arizona, and they've got three against Miami. So they can make up ground really quickly. And not only that, but also on the schedule are strong, underperforming teams like Oakland, Colorado, St. Louis, and the White Sox. So San Diego still thinks they have a shot. If you're asking me, though, I don't think they have a shot. Um, so, But that is that's a team that I really want to look for because they could be not necessarily the Braves when they won it in 2021, um, but just record-wise, you know, where they're, I think, a few games sub-500, and even the Phillies last year when they made the World Series. I'm not going to say they're going to make the World Series, but they're sort of in that category of if they have a strong second half, they can find themselves back into the playoff spot. Because, I mean, the Mar- I you can't really trust any of these young teams who have very little playoff experience like Arizona who started out so hot then they're coming back down to earth you have the Marlins who haven't been contenders for god knows how long since they won their last world series in 2003 um you have the Cubs who have been a rebuilding team the Reds who are coming out of nowhere so when it gets down to late August and September when it's that big playoff push the Padres clearly think that they have the roster and the talent to 
turn things around and get back into this. So again, am I expecting it? No, but I was just shocked that the Padres decided to buy and instead to sell. Um, Going the other way, though, I was very surprised to see the Yankees and their activity at the trade deadline. And they are really a team that I'm not going to watch for every single day, you know, monitor the standings every single time. But I was just surprised that they usually buy big. You know, they go out and get that big name. They've been doing it for years and years and years. They did Anthony Rizzo uh, a few years ago. You know, they brought on the big names in free agency. But this year, they didn't really do anything. They did not do anything. And I was very surprised at that. You know, you don't normally don't see the Yankees as a team who's kind of mailing it in. But all they did was, I believe they grabbed a reliever uh, in their bullpen from the White Sox. And honestly, you know, I was on the mindset that regardless of what move they make, they weren't going to make the playoffs. Not at all. And I think there's a very strong chance that they miss the postseason. Because I think, you know, they're basically going back and forth with the Red Sox right now in terms of, last place but if you're asking me the roster construction of the Sox is much better than the roster construction of the Yankees right now I mean let's face it when you take Aaron Judge out of that lineup I've said it multiple times when you take Judge out in the lineup they're nothing the Yankees are absolutely nothing and even when Aaron Judge comes back from that toe injury he hasn't been able to carry the team you know much like guys like uh, what the Angels did when they were banking on adding pieces around Shohei. Aaron Judge is not that guy, even when he is fully healthy and his big toe isn't facing 90 degrees in the total opposite direction. I mean, so far in his return, he's only batting 226. He's got one home run and three RBI. So part of that could be the toe because he, the judge did say himself that his big toe might not ever be the same. You know, so that could be a part of it. Not 100% sure but we're just going on what we know right now. He can't carry that team. And then all the other options after that, you have Glaber Torres, who's a good hitter, but he's not a power hitter, what they're looking for. Giancarlo Stanton, who runs like an out-of-shape grandma, uh, is only hitting 200 and is more of a, more prone to strikeouts than he is to home runs in this career. Anthony Rizzo, who was, in my opinion, probably the second-best option as a hitter to try and carry the Yankees, but now he's out with still dealing with a weird concussion that he grabbed against San Diego. Um, and then he got symptoms again. It's really weird. And then the pitching situation is just out of line. You've got Garrett Cole, who just got touched up by the White Sox last night. He's not that dominant ace that the Yankees were hoped they got. And then you have Domingo Herman, who is out for the entire year with a situation off the field that the MLBPA had to get into. So, the Yankees are in a world of trouble. I mean, it's gotten to a point where you've got Aaron Boone coming out and basically mocking Laz Diaz because he's got no choice. Um, but the Yankees are in a world of trouble. They are in a world of trouble. And I I, I don't expect Aaron Boone back. I think he's going to be gone after this year. He probably should have been gone after last, after last year. But I don't see how this gets any better for the Yankees, especially when you have up-and-coming teams. I mean, we know that Baltimore, the young team that they are, are going to stay for a long time. We know the Rays are always going to contend, or at least in recent years, have been contending at the top of the division for a long time. You have the Blue Jays with a ton of talent, and then you have the Red Sox who can come out of nowhere just like that. So the Yankees 
might find themselves near the bottom of the division for a couple of years now if they don't get a big culture shock in there. They got to get some big, powerful bats in there because just everywhere, you know, it can't be Aaron Judge, and that's what they relied on. That's why they gave him almost $400 million for him not to go to San Francisco. So it's a world of trouble for the Yankees, and I want to see what happens in that clubhouse, how it all plays out. Um, but one other, one team, another team I'm looking at, of course, is the Angels because everyone is on Shohei Watch because the Angels, they they put their foot in the ground and they said, we're going to buy, we're going to contend for these playoffs. But what happens when you buy? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They're losing seven straight now. They're eight back in the wild card standings. And I said it before. I said it before that the Angels really had no choice because Shohei Otani is Babe Ruth. The equivalent. You know how many people have been making fun of the Red Sox for about 86 years for so long? Why do you think the curse of the Bambino lasted in Boston until 2004? And why everyone made a mockery of the Red Sox? Why? Because they got rid of the best player in the world in Babe Ruth. They basically gave him away. You don't want to do that uh, if you're the Angels and you're Shohei Otani. So you really had no choice because if you still think that you can bring him on, like I said weeks ago, and I've been saying it week after week after week, Shohei has not given us an indication that he is definitely going to leave the LA Angels at the end of the year. He's been basically mum on that whole situation, whether he's going to get $500 million or $600 million, anything like that. But, I mean, we did get our first glimpse. He was nearly in tears uh, against one of, the, uh, one of the losses against Seattle. Uh, I forget which day it was, but it was the eighth or the ninth inning comeback that the Mariners put on and Shohei was just sitting in the, uh, in the dugout and he was on the verge of tears. He was on the verge of tears. Cause he's literally like, what else do I have to do? You know, or, or he looked at the whole roster, you know, kind of looked one way, looked the other. And he said, we're not coming back in this game. I literally can do all I can and it's not going to happen. So that's what I'm seeing with the angels is how much worse does this get? I mean, do they essentially shut down Shohei and be like, listen, we're going to be much better this year once we offer him? So they still think they have a chance to bring him back. Otherwise, they would not have held on to him. They would have gotten rid of him or, you know, the general manager and the owner for the Angels were going to be in the cellar of we were the guys that got rid of Shohei Otani. And look at all these sort of big superstar trades that were made. Does anyone think the Red Sox won the Mookie Betts deal? Does anyone think that the Rockies won the Nolan Arenado deal? I mean, look at the teams who gave away the superstars and the positions that they're in. I, or Arenado is a bad statement because the Cardinals are near in last place, but the Rockies are in last place too. So <laughs> keep that in mind. Um, but again, with Shohei Otani, it's really a dangerous situation because you would have gotten a terrible label if you bought and. Uh, you kept him, but you would have gotten a bad rep if you sold. So really, to cancel that out, you had to make the playoffs. And with the pieces that they added, I said last week that they're not game-changing pieces. They're probably not going to make the playoffs with these pieces, but you had to do it. You had to do it, and the Angels, honestly, they were going to get that poor label anyway for wasting Shohei Otani's career. I mean, they've done that, I said before, with Mike Trout. So what else is new? With the Angels. So all eyes are going to be on Shohei and basically just his body language 
uh, for these last two months. Because honestly, I don't see the Angels making any kind of moves, especially at this rate, sitting eight games back. And you have much more talented teams ahead of them. I see. I, I said it before. I see Shohei not on the Angels at the beginning of next year. I don't see him on the beginning of next year. And the Angels just doomed him from the start of the year. And now they're just making the moves to try and turn things around. But sorry, LA. Too little, too late. Uh, but one last team that I wanted to talk about and really watch for are the Astros. Obviously, they're the defending champs. But I think they're slowly getting back to their championship form. I mean, look at what they did bringing back Justin Verlander. They, I don't know what number prospects they gave up, but... They really needed to improve their starting rotation. I mean, really, Framber Valdez was the only guy that they had. Now you got a guy in Justin Verlander who's not only got the resume um, and has the postseason experience, but he brings some stability to that uh, starting rotation. So I think that was a good move. Um, but really, the big thing for the Astros was that they didn't have the offensive power that they normally have. I mean, you have Alex Bregman who has not been hitting the way he has been. Uh, he's not. He's got a terrible batting average, 244, but he's got 18 homers. Normally, he's about a 30-home run guy. Uh, you've got uh, Jose Altuve, who's known to get on base, um, but he's got a 380 on base percentage. He's not hitting for power like he normally does, despite his size. And then your big offseason acquisition, Jose Abreu, you're not getting what you paid for. Uh, you get you'd get a guy who's a big power hitter who can hit for slugging, but so far, uh, he's hitting 237, 10 home runs, 56 RBIs, and only an on base percentage of 293 and a slugging of 348. That's why they've been leaning on guys like Kyle Tucker and Jordan Alvarez, um, to really turn things around. And Tucker's done his part, but again, I I think they're they're coming back to it, and I wouldn't doubt them getting to the postseason, but they're still in the wild card. I think to really have strong confidence is to get them to win the division. And they're not that far behind of Texas, not that far behind of Texas, especially with the Rangers uh, losing Josh Young um, with a thumb injury, I believe it was. Um, so I do think that they're coming back to form, but similar to the Angels, too little, too late. Um, you've got guys, you know, we know Martin Maldonado wasn't going to hit. We know that uh, Jeremy Pena isn't has it has had a hard time replacing uh, Carlos Correa, and they just sent Corey Jokes, who was all of a sudden this this big hitter and this big contributor for Houston. Now he's back in the minors. So for Houston, you know it, it's kind of similar to you know the Colts of the mid two thousands, the Patriots dynasty, just teams that need to get to the postseason. And then they really turn it up. So I do think Houston is still, you know, you can't, you can't doubt them. You can't doubt them until someone actually beats them. And this could be the year. But in terms of what they did to sort of get back to that championship level, I like what they did. I like what they did. Will I put them as favorites to win the World Series? Not right now. I still put that for Atlanta. I give that to the Braves. Um, but if you gave me a list of you know the top three teams that I think would come out of the AL, the Astros would be on that list, regardless of where they finish in the standings. Um, but the good news is there's only two months left of the regular season, and a lot of things can change uh, in baseball. Now, coming up next, baseball won't be the only sport that's playing. 
Of course, football is back preseason week one. Let's look at the teams who have the players that have a close eye to watch. Switching gears to the NFL, as I said before we hit the in-between segment, football is back, and I got to tell you, I'm just so excited. I don't care if it's preseason or not, just seeing football games out there is going to be so, it's going to be fun. I mean, yes, it does kind of mark the end of summer, um, but just watching football games is just going to be, it, it makes me feel good. makes me feel nice. <laughs> if if you're asking me um, and preseason week one, obviously the hall of fame game was last week. So that technically doesn't count. Uh, but there are some teams and some players that I really want to keep an eye on. You know, I'm, I'm not going to put all my eggs in the basket of week one, but I just want to get, you know, some first impressions. Cause obviously you know, being where I am, I'm focusing on Patriots training camp and everyone within the division, you know, stuff like that. But I want to see some other teams that maybe the most casual fans are, aren't are really paying attention to. And I think to start the list, rookies are obviously the ones to watch. And I especially want to look at Bryce Young and what the Carolina Panthers have set up. Because the Panthers basically put the future in Bryce Young's hands. They traded one of their top receivers in DJ Moore to go get this quarterback out of Alabama, who some are saying might be undersized, um, maybe probably shouldn't have been the first quarterback taken. It should have been like CJ Stroud or whatever. But the Panthers are investing in Bryce Young. And you can see it with sort of the offense that they put around him. You got Miles Sanders, who led the Eagles in rushing. Yes, the Eagles who went to the Super Bowl the top team in rushing, one of the top offenses there. They got him. They brought over a serviceable receiver in DJ Chark. You brought on veteran leadership from Minnesota and Adam Thielen. You got a tight end in Hayden Hurst. Um, so they've fixed the offense, at least on paper, because last year was horrible. They had the fourth worst offense last year in terms of yards per game. And especially in the quarterback situation, you brought on Baker Mayfield late, who some are still, you know, in or out on. We have no idea if Baker Mayfield's going to be good or not. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. You had Sam Darnold, who even before last year was labeled as a bust. And then you had P.J. Walker, who's a lifelong backup. Okay, so the offense was very poorly constructed. And I like their defense. I think they have a serviceable defense. But I just want to see how the Panthers are going forward because let's face it it's been a nightmare since post cam newton when they get even like the last year of cam newton in like 2019 since that year it's been nothing but a rocky road nothing but rocky road and they've literally tried everything they've tried everything to try and turn that franchise around i mean they gave a whop load of money to uh matt rule and then sure enough He's gone. So what is this culture? What is the franchise uh, going to be like? I'm I'm very curious to see how the Panthers will do. And we'll see it. They'll they'll get the Jets, I believe, in uh, their first preseason game. Uh, it is at home. Um, but I just want to see. I want to see how Bryce Young does. I want to see. Because obviously, when you're the number one pick, you're going to have a ton of scrutiny. And 
Um, we already heard that he's going to play. We know we we know that Bryce Young is going to get a couple of drives, a couple of snaps. Um, and I just want to see his first impressions. Because if he's struggling, you know, I, again, I'm not putting all the eggs in the basket, but if you get off to a good start uh, in the preseason, if you have a good preseason, then the expectations are get a little bit higher and people might actually take the Panthers seriously. But if you struggle, you know, that already puts you behind the eight ball. So if Bryce Young just doesn't totally crap on himself in these first couple of preseason games, it doesn't matter about the result, but it's just a matter of how he looks. How can he read the defense? I think if he can get off to a good start uh, in this preseason, he has a good three weeks of preseason, then I think you can start feeling optimistic if you are a Panthers fan that things can turn around. So that's really the first player slash team I want to look at. The second one I want to look at obviously has to be out in mile high. I want to see the relationship between Sean Payton and Russell Wilson. Those two are really the big ones in Denver that I want to see because we know what happened last year. I don't need to give it to you back, but basically Nathaniel Hackett did a poor coaching job and Russell Wilson did not live up to the big trade out of Seattle. What happens? You get a coach who is for sure on his way to the Hall of Fame and Sean Payton. And really what he needed to do, it was almost like, you know, when the when the teacher steps out for a little bit and there's no supervision for all the students, they go crazy and they sort of get out of hand. So what they needed is a firm adult to get back in the classroom and to say, settle down. And they go to the popular kid or whoever's the smartest kid, whoever's running the class, being like, you don't run the show. I run the show, but Peyton also said, and we saw in the comments about Nathaniel Hackett, which Aaron Rodgers strongly clapped back at. He told Russell Wilson uh, in very discreetly that I still trust in you. And last year is last year. Let's put that behind you. So Sean Payton needed to reset the culture. Did he reset the culture though? I would love to see how that looks in these first three preseason games. Cause we saw it. We saw players at the tail end of last year not happy at all with Russell Wilson. We heard a report from an offensive lineman when Russ was trying to fire up his team. He was like, hey, you know, cheer on your team, teammates, you know, stuff like that. We saw those, those guys not happen. Obviously, Nathaniel Hackett gave too much power to Russell Wilson because Russell Wilson could do almost whatever he wanted last year. Now you have Sean Payton, who's a respectable name in there. You'll have guys not named Russell Wilson look at that guy and be that's a guy that I can respect and he's not going to take no BS I mean he didn't just totally pluck Drew Brees from San Diego he had to bring him in and he had to develop him and the entire Saints roster so those first three games I want I want to look at you know sideline mood you know because because we know that Russ Russ Wilson is the guy how he acts on the sidelines he might, you know, tone it down a little bit. Um, Sean Payton, if he sort of holds his players in check or if he was sort of checked out like he was at the tail end of his Saints coaching career. And then also, you know, he still might have his Fox broadcasting hat on and give those one-liners like he did to Nathaniel Hackett. I want to see in this preseason, what is that sideline like? What is that organization like? If I hear guys... Uh, specifically Russell Wilson saying, oh, this is so much better than last year, or the vibes feel so much better, and it feels normal again. 
if that happens, then Denver can be a contending team. But if it's basically a carryover from last year and Sean Payton can do nothing about it, you know, his hands are tied. He's doing all he can, but Russell Wilson is still sort of getting in his own way with the power that he was given. Then it's an issue. Then it's a big issue. So that's what I want to see from the Broncos. How do how does Sean Payton and Russell Wilson set the dynamic and what kind of dynamic is there? Uh, but one last team that I really think, I, I think more teams need to be paying attention to it, not necessarily because they're a good team or uh, a bad team, but just the situation itself is in Tampa, in the Buccaneers. Because really the big question is, what are the Bucs going to do in the post-Tom Brady era? Because we know what happened last year with Tom Brady uh, in his final year. First time ever he finished sub-500. They get bounced by the Cowboys at home in the wild card round. Tom Brady, he announces his retirement. He says, for good. We hear reports that the Bucs were still trying to convince him to come back. You know, granted, it was from Richard Sherman's mouth, so we can't guarantee it. So, obviously, this is a transition year, but I really thought, or I, I think that Tampa believes that Tom Brady was going to come back, and it was going to be, if he did announce his retirement again, um, it would have been the similar to the year before that, where he retired, waited 40 days, then announced he's coming back. And we know it's a transition year because really they just grabbed the last set of quarterbacks that were uh out there. You know, if your quarterbacks are Baker Mayfield, Kyle Trask, and John Walford, yes, it is a transition year. But last year the issue was not Tom Brady. The issue was the offense around him, specifically the offensive line. He only had two and a half seconds to throw. It was the shortest in the league last year, according to next-gen stats. So if Brady only has two and a half seconds to throw, how is it going to work if you have Baker, Kyle Trask, or John Wolford out there? Really, how is it going to work? And we saw in the first couple of days of minicamp a, a month ago that Baker, he struggled, and he was making it a competition with Kyle Trask. That's why. So... I don't know if this is like a full-fledged tank that the Bucs are going to do if they're tanking to get that number one pick and get Caleb Williams. So it only has to be a one-year transition. Um, but I don't think Tampa set themselves up. Um, you know, I know the division really stinks, but um, if you ask me, I think the Saints are the favorite in that division. But for Tampa, they really just didn't have a plan B. They, they relied on Tom Brady. They thought Brady was going to come back. And now... You have guys, you know, like Devin White, who are requesting a trade, but then said, oh, I was selfish, you know, and took it back. So I don't really know what Tampa is going to do this year. They're probably the biggest unknown, if you ask me, in the NFL. The biggest unknown. Because outside of Tom Brady and maybe Leonard Fournette, um, the offense is relatively the same. That's all it is. You'll, you'll have Rashad White, you still have Mike Evans, you still have Chris Godwin, and your defense is still, you know, it wasn't great last year, but it can be better. They did have a couple of injuries now and again. But I think Tampa is the biggest unknown, and that's the franchise that I think more people need to be paying attention to because we saw what happened in New England, and we still know what's going on post-Tom Brady. What do the Bucks do post-Tom Brady? That's the question. That needs to be answered, and we will get answers 
in the preseason, at least from the quarterback standpoint, if it's going to be Baker or Kyle Trask. Um, so that's, you know, the football side of it. Again, regardless of situations, anything like that, it's so exciting to get football back. But coming up next, we're not just looking football. We're going all around the sports world to give you some topics that we didn't quite get to in these first two segments, including heading to the pitch and the disappointment for the United States from the soccer team. go rapid fire on a couple of uh, topics here throughout the sports world that we've had in the past week or so and I think the big one over the weekend had to be in the Women's World Cup and that the United States is not going to do a three-peat the women's soccer team losing to Sweden early Sunday morning and not only did they lose they lost in penalty kicks on the round of 16 the earliest exit in women's soccer history for the U.S. and it was kind of surprising very surprising um, considering the way that they lost. I mean, you had Megan Rapino, Sophia Smith, Kelly O'Hara, they all missed. And then you had the unfortunate bounce. Alyssa Nayer got the save, but then they went to VAR on that second attempt. The ball went over the line and that was it. Um, and honestly, you know, it, it was kind of disappointing. It was disappointing to watch the women um, in their performance this World Cup. I mean, they were held scoreless in the last two matches. And out of their four World Cup games, they only scored four times. They got four goals. It was, and three of them came in the very first one. Um, so, you know, everyone's looking at the, the criticism from Carly Lloyd. Obviously, you know, uh, the head coach for the women's national team wasn't happy about it, you know, saying that, you know, the criticism was unjustified, kind of a cheap shot, stuff like that. But honestly, you know, I, I'm not the biggest soccer expert. I, I can tell you that I'm probably a, <laughs> I would say maybe a 10% casual fan. You know, I couldn't give you the the ins and outs. and I couldn't tell you what exactly went wrong or I couldn't break it down, you know, as part of the all 22 crews, we like to say uh, on WEEI. Um, but just watching the games, you know, they, they had their opportunities, they had their chances and they just, they couldn't capitalize. And obviously this was a, a much different team. Obviously you had Rapino who was kind of flirting with retirement and then eventually came on. Then she announced that this was going to be her last world cup. Um, and they just, you know, they just didn't have the pieces. They didn't have the pieces to, to put it together. And you know, it, it, it stinks obviously when you're an American and, uh, they lose this thing, but you know, I, from what I've read about what experts were saying about the U S team and then hearing Carly Lloyd, how, they don't really have championship-driven players. Um, it, it's disappointing. It, it's very disappointing. And I'm I'm sure that it, when we get to 2027, which I believe is the next Women's World Cup, I'm sure that the U.S. will, will play much better than that. And they'll have players who are determined to uh, go get that victory. Um, so that's, that's the two minutes I'm going to give of soccer. Don't ask me for anything more. Um, but... Moving on, in back to baseball, I mean, the talk of the weekend in the MLB was Jose Ramirez and Tim Anderson literally duking it out. I mean, this was, when you get normal brawls in the MLB, usually just get guys who are just standing there talking, you know, maybe get like a shove now and then. 
You don't get a literal fight. This was a legit fight. You know, you could put four ropes and a corner for a boxing ring around second base the way Tim Anderson and Jose Ramirez uh, squared up. So I looked at the I looked at the replay multiple times. I tried to figure out, okay, who took issue with what? And looking on it, Jose Ramirez, he slides in head first and he goes between the legs of Tim Anderson. And if I had to guess, you know, Jose Ramirez was just upset that he either maybe got tagged hard on the in the face or on the head. Then you had Anderson standing over him, but he still kept the tag on. Um, so honestly, I'm not sure why Ramirez had issue with it, and I don't understand why Tim Anderson gets suspended six games and Jose Ramirez only gets three games. Because when you think about it, Ramirez was the one that incited it, and he really shouldn't have had any issue. I mean, what was he expecting Tim Anderson to take his glove off and then step back over him? We, you've seen it when guys are sliding in. They hold on to that tag until the runners call for timeout. Now, I don't know if, you know, maybe Tim Anderson said a magic word that said, let's go drop the glove, um, because you saw it right there. They were talking, and then he drops his glove, and they're starting to, you know, square up. And not only that, but Anderson got rocked. He fell to the ground on that punch. I mean, that might be the, I don't know if it's better than the Rudnett Ordor Jose Bautista brawl, um, but that was definitely very entertaining, at least from a fan standpoint. But I just don't get how Tim Anderson gets more games of a suspension than Jose Ramirez does. I don't know if it's, you know, just going on past history because I, I don't believe that at all. I really don't think this warranted going back into the history books for Tim Anderson um, for recent suspensions, fines, anything like that. I don't see that. Um, so that's just how I see it. I know it, it was entertaining and fun as a brawl. I've, I always have fun with my buddy who's a Cleveland fan being like, why are you guys, you know, starting fights and stuff like that? Um, but, you know, I, I just didn't get it. I didn't get why Tim Anderson got double the suspension that Jose Ramirez did if Ramirez was the one who really got that started. So that that's what you asked me. And maybe the uh, the reliever who was on the White Sox, I forget his name, um, maybe that's what he means when he says there's no stability and no organization in that White Sox clubhouse if you got guys... Uh, dropping the glove and getting ready to fight. Um, but moving on from uh, baseball, we go to football, or I should say college-related, uh, because more conference realignment going on as the Pac-12, a historic conference that's seen some amazing products and amazing people come out of that, like John Wooden, like uh, the year for USC, UCLA, all those all those teams, all those history-making moments, they're basically dead because all of their teams are basically hitting it and they're going to different ones. Oregon and Washington going to the Big Ten. Utah, Arizona, Arizona State off to the Big 12. There's talks that Cal and Stanford might are – they're talking with the ACC. I mean, it's it's just chaos. It is chaos right now for college sports. And I've really relied on the fact that this is just going to turn into one big mega conference. And they're basically going to pick, you know, 80 teams or whatever for a, a big mega conference. And then all these, you know, what was the SEC and the big 10, big 12, they're going to turn into divisions. You know, that's what I think is going to happen. But 
Essentially, it is all about the payday. These schools are looking for those TV deals. They're looking for more money and more exposure. And sure enough, you know, Oregon and Washington are going to be traveling to Ohio State, to Michigan, to Michigan State, to Wisconsin, when that was so unlikely. Really, the only time you would get that is during bowl season. So I just, re- I'm very curious. It's almost like I want to fast forward to what the NCAA is going to do. What are they going to do about this? Because teams are going to continually jump conferences because they're going to chase after the money. So I just want to fast forward to when this all gets turned into one big mega conference with subdivisions that eventually lead to any kind of playoffs or stuff like that. So it's just, it's a complicated situation with college sports. I'm glad I'm not in college right now or, you know, uh, no, I'm face first into covering any kind of college team um, because it's just chaos right now. Absolute chaos. Um, But going back to football, though, to get on a lighter note, uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, always a great time. We saw nine more members added and a couple of great speeches this weekend. Um, I just wanted to talk about uh, a few of the names that um, were in the Hall of Fame or who got enshrined. Um, Darrell Revis is the big one. I think he was the first shutdown corner that I remember growing up. Uh, in watching football. I mean, that doesn't really exist nowadays, obviously, because the football is so offensive-centric. But in terms of cornerbacks where you would put together a game plan where you didn't have to target them, you know, if you had your top, you you would put, coaches would put together game plans where they would try to get their best receiver not uh, on Darrell Revis. I mean, you don't get a nickname Revis Island for nothing. And what he accomplished in his career, starting with the Jets, I'm glad he's got a Super Bowl ring, and I'm glad it was here in Foxborough against the Pats, but that's maybe one of the last few shutdown corners that this game has. So um, much respect to Revis, and it was kind of funny for the Jets fans (laughs) to see him mention the Patriots where he got his ring and blew him out the building. It's like, hey, he came back to the Jets after then. You know, just keep that in mind. Um, Joe Thomas is another name I wanted to talk about. Thomas basically kept the Cleveland Browns relevant for years that they weren't. I mean, this is a guy who blocked for 18 different quarterbacks. I mean, keep in mind, before Cleveland got the stability of Baker Mayfield, followed by Deshaun Watson, it was literally like picking names out of a hat, being like, guess what? You're quarterbacking for the Cleveland Browns. And the fact that he went over 10,000 consecutive snaps um, before that ended. I mean, come on. That's no guys do that anymore when we're talking about load management and preparing for the playoffs and getting guys healthy. No one does that anymore. Joe Thomas was that guy in the football world. He really was. And I have much respect for what he did uh, in that Browns organization, because with all the struggles, he easily could have just walked right out the door and gone to a winning team and get himself to the playoffs because he never made the playoffs before or even get to a Super Bowl. He's that legendary. So respect to Joe Thomas. Um, and then lastly, DeMarcus Ware was just always feared. I mean, he was he was in this category in the late 2000s of just edge rushers to watch out for. And every time you were playing the Cowboys, you had to always keep an eye out on your blind side or on the uh, right tackle position. 
because DeMarcus Ware was an absolute force. And then he goes to Denver, and he's part of that historic defensive team that won Super Bowl 50, helped Peyton Manning out, you know, with him, Vaughn Miller. I mean, DeMarcus Ware has nothing but respect, and he's one of the nicest guys um, out there. I would have loved if he didn't sing the national anthem because it was a lot of it was forced. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I still give respect to DeMarcus Ware as a football player and as a Hall of Famer, just not as a singer. <laughs> and then lastly, on a lighter note, um, just really quickly, DeMar Hamlin, a full participant in Bill's training camp. I'm so, so incredibly happy, but I'm also a little bit nervous because I talked about Ronnie James and his cardiac arrest last week. And I mentioned that these are guys I'm pulling for them because I want them not just to have a successful career, but a successful life. So I just really am hoping and praying that Tamar Hamlin can fulfill his career. And this is a really good step. This is a really, really big step to see him as a full participant. He even got an interception I saw uh, during one of those practice days. Um, so I'm just so happy to see Hamlin back out there and doing his thing. But I also just pray for his safety um, because I really hope that, you know, he can live not just an incredible career, but a successful life because let's face it. He was dead for a couple of minutes, but that bills uh, medical staff, the training staff coming out and saving the day, mad respect, mad respect to that. And I hope Demar Hamlin uh, just has continued success. That's the only reason I'm rooting for the Buffalo Bills. Just keep that in mind. That's the only reason I'm rooting for him as a Patriots fan is to see that guy uh, have success in his life and in his career. Uh, but speaking of Patriots, they are one of the teams that we got to talk about when we get local coming up next. It's the Pats. It's the Sox. It's Let's Get Local. This is our as we do every week at this time we gotta get local and look at those boston sports let's get local segment of the week and i gotta forewarn you people all you listeners out there this is going to get very very ugly because everyone is talking about the red sox and the lack of moves that they did at the trade deadline. And everyone's trying to point the finger as to what, what is going on. What exactly is going on? I mean, they go out to the West Coast. They struggle against San Fran and Seattle. Then they get swept and look absolutely lifeless. They have a base running blunder um, with Reese McGuire not properly reading a foul ball. Then they get blown out 13-1 to one the next uh, the next day. Um, you know, granted it did turn around last night, which we'll get into a little bit, but who do we look at? And for me, it's obvious. Heim Bloom made all of this happen. He dug his own grave with this situation because he's done the Red Sox nothing but a disservice since he has taken part in Red Sox organization, since he became this chief baseball officer or whatever his title is. Because what does he do for a team? that is only two games out of the wild card and has a shot to get into the playoffs. If you make just a single move, not, not, you know, relay everything out there, not put all your eggs into someone's basket. He does nothing. Absolutely nothing. He literally just sits there sitting on his hands and just says, let's see what our guys can do. Okay. 
That is a terrible message to send. You have a team that is overperforming, and no one expected to even contend for a wild card. This was everyone's pick to finish last in the division. And what happens? They get they hit a really good stretch. They have the right pieces there. They've got great leadership in Justin Turner. They've got guys who can hit. They've got a young core that you can take an advanced step into any kind of rebuilding phase that you wanted to go through. And Heimbloom doesn't do any of it. Okay? And then... You know, he comes out and says that this team is underdogs. Really? Is a team an underdog when they're maybe 10 games over 500 and on the verge of getting into the playoffs when you're making this trade? Maybe they were at the beginning of the year, but not this year. There is an obvious disconnect between clubhouse and management. And I don't know if Heim Bloom is getting this from John Henry or from Sam Kennedy or Brian O'Halloran or Tom Werner or anyone in that Red Sox front office, but it is an absolute shame what the Red Sox did at the trade deadline. The fact that you don't decide to invest in this team, the fact that you don't invest in this team, as I said, sends a terrible message because this team, regardless of what he or anyone in ownership thinks, is much better, is much better than they think. Okay? Is he really expecting this team to finish in last place? Is he so concerned about the farm system that he wants every single possibility out there? How many people, how many prospects out there who everyone labeled as this top guy or who this team shouldn't get rid of? How many guys actually make it? The answer, very small percentage. Very small percentage of guys who are Highly touted prospects, either in double A AA or triple A, work their way up through the minors, are actually successful. Okay? Not many of them. Not many of them. You have your untouchables. You have Marcella Meyer. You have Sedan Rafaela. You have all these guys who are untouchables. How about the guys after that? Okay? Is really anyone going to be expecting if they make their way up there? If you really care if your 15th ranked prospect or your 10th ranked prospect is really traded? No. How about the guys in 50, okay? Does he really want to hold on to all 55 of these prospects? Because if he does, it's a dumb move. Absolute dumb move. And Chris Scheim on the Greg Hill Show, and when I produce for him on the WEI Producer Show, said it best. Give us a path. Literally, if you bought or if you sold, it would have been one thing. But the fact that you stood and did nothing, like, where is the direction of this team? No one knows if they're a contending team that we should be expecting them to contend for the playoffs and should be in the playoffs every time, or if they just continue to sell, sell, sell and are comfortable with staying in the bottom of the division. So really, if I'm John Henry and I'm actually alive in this ownership and I actually care about this baseball team, I'd be looking at what Bloom did and I'd be saying, you should be fired for this. Because it's been multiple years that Heim Bloom decides to go down this path of making either the cheap move or no move at all. Okay? This team last year, when they were only two back and still contending for a playoff, decides to get rid of a clubhouse leader in Christian Vasquez. Granted, it probably was the right move, but the fact that you tow this line of selling off Christian Vasquez, but still bringing guys like Tommy Pham and Eric Hosmer, okay? The year before that, 
You get Kyle Schwarber. How? Because he was hurt, and you expect him to play a position he's never played before in first base. Are you kidding me? Okay, I can go back to twenty, the end of 2019 when he trades Mookie Betts. What did he get out of that trade? You got Alex Verdugo, he might, who might be on his way out the door. Connor Wong, who's not even, he's not a top catcher out there. He's a serviceable catcher, but he's not a top catcher out there. The fact, Jeter Downs, who's not even in the organization anymore. Okay, not only should John Henry look at that, he should be looking at what happened this weekend with Alex Cora. Look at what happened Saturday. Cora in his post game was absolutely pissed. You could see it. You could hear it in his voice. He said it was one of the worst days since he took over as a manager. And because Alex Verdugo was late and had to be scratched from the lineup for Adam Duvall, you could see it with Cora. He's literally, it's almost like he's throwing his hands up and he's like, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. When the season ends, I'm out of here. So it's just been a horrible, horrible situation for the Red Sox. And fans should be literally irritated and angered by Heim Bloom and Heim Bloom himself for the moves that he made. Then when you're done with that anger, transfer it over to ownership because they empowered him to make these kinds of moves, okay? Don't worry about the players. Don't worry about the manager. Cora is managing his ass off. The players are literally giving all that they can. But the fact that they were constructed this way by the chief baseball officer is absolutely ridiculous. And the fact that they're just blowing smoke in our ears, that Sam Kennedy is saying that Sox fans are the smartest in the game, and Heim Bloom thinks that they're in line with what the team wants, that's not true. That's a complete lie. And honestly, I'm done wasting my breath with Heim Bloom because, yes, he rebuilt this farm system. Yes, he has a young core. But we've seen throughout his entire time since replacing Dave Dombrowski that he has no idea how to sustain any kind of this success. He cares more about the next three years after this year. And then when we get three years after that, he'll concern himself with the next three years before worrying about the major league team right here and now. So that's what's frustrating about this. And do I expect things to turn around after Pablo Reyes hits a walk-off grand slam to win 6-2? to two? Yeah, it'll turn around for the players. Can they make the playoffs? They still can. But what do you think that clubhouse is thinking when Bloom literally tells the team without even telling them, we don't believe in this team. You guys have to go do it yourself, okay? It's just, it's disgusting. It's disgusting what they did. And it could all be a moot point if Chris Sale and Trevor Story, who are coming back this week, Trevor Story's going to play tonight. Chris Sale's going to start on Friday. If they come back and they go back on a heater and they get and they leapfrog over Toronto and they're back in the playoff chase, that's one thing. But you can't bank on it. You cannot bank on it and guarantee that, oh, from what we saw in their rehabs, we think they're better than any kind of trade that we could have made. Like, just give some kind of direction. That's There are so many things that I think I'm going to have to spend weeks talking about regarding High and Bloom. But that's just, I had to get that out of there. Because uh, it was just, it's ridiculous what the Red Sox did. And more specifically, what High and Bloom did at the trade deadline. You know, you did hold on to your pieces, which I said, hold on to Paxton. And I was a sort of 50-50 on Duvall. 
I'm glad he's here, but I wouldn't have been totally upset if he got traded either. So I, it's, it's a wait and see. It's a wait and see with the Red Sox. And they need to win these games, okay? They need to win all these series against Kansas City, Detroit, and then Washington, okay? They need it. They need to go about 7-3, I think, because you can't play around with these teams because then you're going to get much harder competition and it's going to be impossible for them to come out of things. So that's the Red Sox minute, and I'm sure we'll be talking about a lot of them week after week after week considering what was happened at the trade deadline. But let's go from negative to positive. Let's be excited that the Patriots are getting back into action. They've got their first preseason game this Thursday, taking on Houston. Obviously, we're not going to look at you know game results or anything like that. Really, what I'm looking for is kind of similar to what I talked about uh, with Dent with the Broncos earlier in the show, and that's a vibe check. I want to see a vibe check during these games and pra- practices because let's face it, last year was a total mess. The fact that Bill Belichick brought on Matt Patricia and Joe Judge. And I think he's going to need a big image change this weekend. Now, I don't know if you do that with bringing Trey Flowers back. I'm not 100% sure why he's back. um, Because he's a 30-year-old pass rusher. You know, if that's for depth. You know, because you're not expecting... You're not expecting him to make any kind of significant uh, contributions. You know, if you're putting him on the other side... With Matthew Judon, which, by the way, he did get a, a good raise. That's another thing. I'm not sure about that. Um, Judon getting uh, 18 million, getting a uh, 14 million dollars now in his deal could go up to 18 million. That's good for an image. It's good to hold on to Judon because, again, the the concern was sort of like a hold in by Judon that he was practicing, but he wasn't really giving it, or that he was at practice but he wasn't practicing. So it was like getting the attendance mark when you go to class, but not putting in the effort to to do the work. You know, not not saying Judon doesn't put any effort into anything, but, you know, getting that situation, good. That's good to get that in the past. Then you have to figure out how is the offense going to look? Because we know that with Bill O'Brien, there's going to be some stability there and that the offense should look much better. Now, they don't have the most talented offense, but... They should look much better. Now, in terms of the preseason game itself, you know, if the, what I'm looking for with Mac Jones in terms of playing time is maybe two series, two or three series. I think it will be concerning if he plays more than one quarter. I think that's what it is because there's rumblings, you know, some rumblings that, you know, there's a competition between him and Bailey Zappi. I firmly don't believe it. I think Mac Jones is the starter, should be the starter, will be the starter. Um, but if Belichick is holding any kind of competition, you'll see it if Mac Jones plays more than one quarter. That's that's ultimately what I think. I really think that it's going to be Mac for the first couple of series. Zappi will take it up until halftime. And then it'll be maybe Trace McSorley. And maybe they give Malik Cunningham. Uh, the undrafted rookie from Louisville. Maybe they give him some snaps there. Um, he has been practicing more in sort of a hybrid role, more as a receiver, uh, something like that. So I don't really expect that. But I I expect um, that that's the thing I expect from the offense. You know, I don't, I'm not going to put anything into how many targets, you know, a certain receiver gets. You know, if he's going to, you know, if Juju Smith-Schuster doesn't get any targets, if Devontae Parker doesn't get any targets, 
Um, you know, if I see that Mac goes to one player every single time, that's going to be one thing. Like if they get to the red zone and he's always looking for Hunter Henry or for Mike Kosicki, that's one thing. Um, but if it's, you know, if he's able to split up the targets on some of these throws, then, you know, that's okay. Then that will, I'll be, I'll be okay with that, but I'm not putting much stock into this preseason week one in terms of results or how players look. I'm looking for more of a vibe because Mac Jones has said it's more fun and he's going back to having more fun. And obviously he has fun. He, you can have fun when you have guys who know what they're doing, watching your back. Um, you know, so it's just, it's, it's vibes. I'm looking at the offensive line. If they can get any kind of stability, you know, those are just the little things that I'm looking at uh, for this Patriots team. So it's, it's kind of a whirlwind time here when you're talking about Boston, but um, staying on the lighter side to end our show, we got to look at our LOL moment of the week. And this one might be a little unconventional. at our LOL moment of the week. And I said to tease it that it's a little bit of unconventional. Um, this LOL moment is, it, it, it can be funny for some people, but at least for me, because it's relative to my field and something that hits a little bit home, it's not really an LOL. It's more of a WTF moment of the week. So I'm awarding this LOL moment to Orioles ownership, the Baltimore Orioles ownership, because they decided to make one of the stupidest moves in the history of stupid moves, okay? I have so many issues with what the Baltimore Orioles ownership did. Now, for those that don't know, the lead guy on the Orioles broadcast team for uh, MASN is Kevin Brown. Kevin Brown started in radio for them, started on their radio broadcast, and then took over a couple of years ago and is widely respected in the broadcasting community and has not been involved in any controversy at all. But not to his fault, not to his own undoing, he he is now apparently in some hot water. I want to play this clip. Um, for those of you that will uh, see it, you'll understand how upsetting this is. Um, and those that are listening, you'll also be very upset. So take a listen. This was back on July 23rd. This was when the Rays were playing the Orioles. They were in Tampa uh, for Baltimore versus uh, the Rays. And this was what Kevin Brown said on the pregame, talking about the Orioles' lack of success at Tropicana Field. Take a listen to this. Brandon Hyde has felt like this has been maybe the toughest ballpark to play in, but the Orioles have a chance to do something special today. They've Already clinched at least a split in the series, winning two of the first three, and they could pick up a series win behind Tyler Wells today. It's been a minute. The Orioles split a two-gamer with the Rays in June. They had lost their last 15 series here at Tropicana Field. You have to go back to when our now colleague Brad Brock picked up the win in the series finale June 25th, 2017, the last time the Orioles won a series here at St. Pete. Already got three and two of the chop this year after winning three of 18. The previous three years combined. It is a stark difference, Ben, and it is not a bad Rays team. 
It's not like all of a sudden the no. race uh, became slouches in the American League East. They've led this division every day, but now two, and the Orioles once again are back alone in first place. So those comments seem harmless. They seem totally fine. Well, it was because of those comments that Orioles ownership decided to suspend him. Kevin Brown got suspended for those comments right there. Okay, the big issue that I look at is that he said what the graphic said. For those of you who are watching us on YouTube, this was a graphic that was put out and it was planned. It was put on the broadcast and he was reading off of it and said that Baltimore won more games at Tropicana this year in 2023 than they have in the past three years combined. But let me say that again. That statement was on a freaking graphic, okay? Not only is this censorship violating free speech, this does everything, everything morally wrong with the fact that no one is allowed to speak their mind, okay? This angers me so much. That would be like if I was producing WEEI and I was talking about the Red Sox because we are the Red Sox radio network. If I talked to... Fitzy and Hart on a Sunday, and I said, hey, this Red Sox team really stinks. If I said in my trending update that the Red Sox have lost four in a row and five of their last six, John Henry could come to me and be like, hey, because you said that, we are suspending you. Luckily, we are in a great city with, you know, as much as I rail on John Henry and that ownership for the direction and all that, they at least allow people to criticize them, okay? That's why you get to hear Joe, the legendary Joe Castiglione, who is respected. Will Fleming, who is respected. Lou Maloney, who is respected. We get to rail, you know, if we have to. We get to criticize. But the fact that Orioles ownership don't allow this, because let's face it, the Orioles have been a dumpster fire. Basically, since 1984, they have been a dumpster fire. And for the past 30 years, John Angelos, the owner, has just basically canceled any... He's just been so unlikable... And this just hits a completely new low, a completely new low. And I'm absolutely disgusted, just like I am with the Red Sox. I am even more disgusted with this situation right here. Now, Kevin Brown is going to return Friday, but that doesn't take away anything from the situation. He still is going to have to live with the fact that because he read off a graphic and maybe he ad-libbed a little bit, but nothing insanely critical of Baltimore, he was boosting them he was boosting the fact that the Orioles were actually good this year and that they were winning games in Tampa and that they're in first place in the AL East and Michael Kay from uh the Yankees network said it best is that now he has to live with this embarrassment for publicly humiliating this guy who is well respected throughout the league and in the broadcasting world and you decide to do this to him that is shameful every single scrutiny when you look around baseball when you go to the Red Sox broadcast, to the Mets broadcast, the White Sox. You know, look all at social media. The fact of the scrutiny and the criticism that Angelos has got should be properly justified, and he should be ashamed that he has to be the owner of a team that were once fan favorites. This was a team that everyone was rooting for, a casual fan. If your team wasn't in it, you were rooting for the Orioles because they were a young team and they had everything going for them. But now everyone is going to root against them because their owner is a piece of garbage who decides to suspend someone for reading off a graphic that was planned 
hours before a broadcast even goes on. It is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous what John Angelos decides to do. So at least for me, it's the rage moment of the week. But at least for this segment, John Angelos, for making the stupidest decision in the history of baseball by suspending Kevin Brown, a broadcaster who reads off a graphic, not even his own thoughts, reads off a graphic. He's earned himself into this week's LOL moment of the week. And we are done. We needed that one. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of Let Me Speak. Make sure, as always, you are following our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. Programming note, we are going to be off next week because this guy right here is going to be filling in as a producer for Jones and Mego with Arcan on WEEI. So tune into that all next week from 2 to 6 on 93.7 or wherever you can get WEEI via the Odyssey app or at WEEI.com. You can always call in 617-779-7937 or hop on the text line 37937. Thank you again for everyone to tune in, and we will see you in two weeks for the newest edition of Let Me Speak. Later! Later!